and you've been listening to the news on RTHK. Back chat on RTHK Radio 3. My name is Andrew Work, and today I'm hosting with Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Andrew. Hey, on today's Back Chat, we're going to discuss climate change and more specifically, melting glaciers. This comes after a report by the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development, or ICIMOD, which found that Himalayan glaciers, which provide critical water to nearly 2 billion people, are melting faster than ever before due to climate change. According to the report, the glaciers disappeared 65% faster from 2011 to 2020 compared with the previous decade. And based on current emissions trajectories, the Nepal-based intergovernmental think tank says glaciers could lose up to 80% of their current volume by the end of the century. It also predicts an increase in natural catastrophes as a result, including flash floods and avalanches that could displace millions unless we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions beyond target. And after 9.45, we'll get a transport analyst take on the stepping up of law enforcement action against the abuse of the Hong Kong $2 fare subsidy scheme for senior citizens. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message here on our Facebook page. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk, as many of you often do. Or you can give us a call on 233-88266. And today's guests are on the line. Uh, I'd like to say hello to Tom Ung, who's a campaigner with Greenpeace. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Good morning. And we also have with us uh, today Dr. Jed Kaplan, who's an associate professor at the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Hong Kong. Good morning, Professor Kaplan. Good morning. Okay. Uh, uh, Professor Kaplan, let's start with you. Uh, melting glaciers. Um, there's a number here that this, the, these glaciers provide water for up to 2 billion people. That's a lot of humanity. Um, how, how, do you, how did they come up with that number to give us an idea of how important these glaciers are? Well, the major rivers of the Himalaya and the Tibetan Plateau and the Hindu Kush in the, in the western part of the, to the west of the Tibetan Plateau all feed down into some of the most densely populated areas of the world, like northern India and eastern China and uh, into Pakistan. And so these are areas where a lot of people rely on water coming down from high mountain Asia to feed their agriculture to for their domestic and industrial uses. Okay, and uh, so specifically we're talking China and northern India and southern China. Are there any other countries that are impacted by this? Uh, for sure. Afghanistan, Pakistan, parts of the Central Asian republics and Russia itself. So we are talking about actually a pretty huge area of uh, eastern and central Asia. Mm. Right. Um, so according to the report, the glaciers disappeared 65% faster from 2011 to 2020, so as compared to with the last decade. So um, can, can you explain a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, I think what we're, what we're basically seeing as a result of overall global climate change, so global warming, is an increase in the melting rate of all of these mountain glaciers. And we've noticed particularly in the area around the Tibetan Plateau and the Himalaya, that temperatures at higher elevations are warming faster than they are at lower elevations. And this is having consequences for the mass balance of a glacier. That is the rate at which it accumulates from new snowfall versus the rate at which it is melting away because of warm temperatures. And so as we've seen this warmer and warmer temperatures at higher elevations, 
glaciers are melting faster than they're growing, and that's why we see them thinning and uh, shrinking backwards up the mountainsides. Did I did I hear that right? Did you say they're, they're, the temperatures are warming faster at a higher elevation? That's right, yes. We've seen that. That's a, one thing that we've noticed all over the world in monitoring climate change is that at higher elevations and higher latitudes, temperatures are changing much faster, warming faster than they are in, say, coastal areas like Hong Kong, where we haven't experienced quite the same rate of warming over the last few decades. So they're not hotter. They're just the differential is higher, right? Is that? That's right. So okay. the rate of change is faster. Of course, it's not hotter at 8,000 meters on the side of Mount Everest than it is in Hong Kong, but it is warming faster there than it is here. Gotcha. So um, is that unexpected for the climate scientist and uh, and you know yourselves? No, I don't think this is particularly unexpected. These kind of changes, let's say the differential rate of warming and the fact that it is warming faster at high elevations and high latitudes is one thing that we might expect as a result of ongoing and future climate change. Mm. Right. Is that just the Himalayas? Um, for example, there, there are many, many high mountains in North, North America and elsewhere? Yeah, of course. No, we're seeing the same thing all over. For example, in East Africa, where the snows of the famous snows of Kilimanjaro are shrinking away fast. We've noticed it in New Guinea, where the last remnant glaciers on the highest mountains in Indonesia are melting away. We've seen it in the Andes that have been subject to a few catastrophic floods and landslides as a result of glacier meltback. No, we're definitely noticing these rapid changes in high mountain areas all around the world. Tom Ung from Greenpeace. I know that uh, Greenpeace also monitors, uh, you know, this, these types of these types of environments. So, where, where are you most concerned about the impact? Uh, well, we don't have a place that I'm most concerned because, uh, like the professor, uh, like Dr. Jade said, uh, everywhere all the glaciers around the world are melting really fast, and it's a very like a serious issue right now because. Um, First of all, in like Asia area around Himalaya, uh, we have like two billion people like are affected by this uh, glacier melting faster than ever, and then other places as well. Like we are talking about around the globe, like in Europe, America, or in uh, Africa as well. Like all this glacier melting faster. They um, we're talking about like water sources are affected and also more flooded uh, affecting people around the rivers. Not only that, but the, the melting glacier also impact to the sea level rise that we're dealing with now. Like uh, talking about in the past 20 years, about 20% of the sea level rise are because of the melting glaciers that are increasing. So um, we don't have anywhere that are most concerned because all of them are very serious impact to all human lives. Right, but I mean, we have limited resources. We got to we got to focus somewhere. And this in this part of the world, and given we're talking about these specifically these Himalayan glaciers, where where do you think the biggest impact is that that people are going to have to deal with? Well, um, to the Himalaya um, glaciers melting, I think the most impact area would be the Southeast Asia, according to the past news. Because uh, like two years ago, we can see that there are uh, Nepal, there are water dams that are collapsed, and then uh, last year. In northern Pakistan, there's a bridge collapsed because of the flash flood from the Great Lake uh, that, uh, that they melted faster than before. So I think the Southeast Asia area will be impacted most at the moment. Are we, are we, I think that's a, if I could just jump yeah, in sure, there for a second, sure. I think that's a really interesting question. And I think it has sort of two important dimensions. And one is the rate 
of climate change or the way in which climate change is affecting glaciers. And so if we just take it from a strictly scientific viewpoint, yes, the lower elevation glaciers, particularly in the eastern Himalaya, seem to be melting faster than, for example, those in the Hindu Kush or the far west where you have higher elevations and colder temperatures. But that's not the only part of the story. The other side of the story is really about society's ability to cope and adapt to these changes. And I think that some countries are better placed for helping the people who live in those regions and those regions affected by glacier melt in terms of giving them um, new infrastructure and new ways of adapting to the fact that there's going to be less snow melt and less glacier melts during summertime, while other countries are just more limited in their options because of financial constraints or organizational ones. And so um, when you think about where to focus our attention, it definitely should take into account those two different factors. And as Tom mentioned, um, in South Asia, there are some major issues partly related to the fact that glacier melting, but also partly related to the fact that there are vulnerable infrastructure and societies. Sure. I mean, if China wants to move a million people and put some dams up because they can see which way things are going, they can do it. Whereas most of those other countries are they're kind of an organizational disaster, aren't they? Well, I, I think there is some, there's definitely some truth to that statement. Yeah. Ada? Yeah. Um, we have been talking about 1.5 degrees as a target. Now, um, it, this sounds very grave. Um, is it enough, 1.5 degrees, to stop this uh, from happening? I don't think there's anything we can do to stop glacier melt from happening. Even if we could stabilize global temperatures at 1.5 degrees above the pre-industrial level, the all of the mountain glaciers across the world will experience a certain amount of irreversible melt. The question that we have to be thinking about is, can we achieve 1.5 or what happens or how much worse would it get if we only are able to stabilize global temperatures at say three or four degrees above uh, pre-industrial levels? And so this is a major challenge for society in terms of thinking about what, how much disruption are we going to be able to tolerate in the future. For sure, the costs of adapting to the new climate future will be much lower if we can limit global warming to that 1.5 degree or 2 degree target than it will be if, we have to, if we're facing 3 or 4. Mm. Right. And Tom? Uh, yeah, we have that 1.5 degree target around the globe, but uh, at the moment right now, the glaciers are already melting faster than ever, and we are not at 1.5 degree yet. So, uh, which means saying that if uh, if the global warming get worse in the future, then the glaciers will melt even worse, and then it will have more impact around the globe, like all the society and all the water supply and, and so on. So, I think the one thing is we have to do is that we have to limit 1.5 degree, and then that's also limit the impact that we, is coming soon to us in the new in the next few decades. Like the impact is coming, so we have to like try our very best. It's a global problem. We need global solution to like um, limit this impact, limit the uh, rising of the temperature, so that the glacier glacier would, would not uh, melt as quick and as worse impact to society. 
Yeah, uh, Tom, while we've got you on here, I know Greenpeace, so one of the things you guys are interested in is biodiversity. Uh, if we're talking about flooding, we're talking about, you know, really strong changes to the local environment in, in a number of different countries all around the region. If it's going to affect 2 billion people, what about other species that could be impacted by this? What do, what do you have on your watch list? Well, there are a few things. First of all, uh, because of the global warming and also the glaciers, uh, like uh, there's more water uh, as glaciers melting. So first of all, on the mountain area, like those are really high up, uh, the ice are like getting less. So some animals or some other uh, species that require cold area, they are getting less area to live in. The second of all, when there's like more glacier melting, like water will rush down, like more flood will rush into the river at the uh, in lowland area. That means that a lot of animals or species will be rushed out, or they might even die. Mm. Like they, and also a lot of species they just lost their habitats as well. Any in particular that you've got your eye on, or is that more a WWF thing? Um, there's a lot of different organizations doing things like this, uh, and we currently don't have a campaign on this. We had a campaign on this issue 10 years ago, but not now. Um, mm. well, yeah. what, what about, you um, mentioned South Asia um, just now, what about the whole of China? Um, you know, the glaciers um, uh, feed into the, um, the uh, Yellow River and also the Yangtze River, right? That's right. Uh, and um, so what, what, what sort of impact do, do you see um, to the whole of China, you know, when, when the glaciers are melting quickly? One of the things we can see a lot more is that um, there is uh, extreme flooding in the, uh, in the short term and in long term the water supply may lack because the glaciers are melting faster, like more water will come out in the short term. And after they melted, uh, most of the glaciers are melted, the water supply will be limited for this river. And all this river that you just mentioned about, um, they're actually like feeding a lot of farmlands and also like water supply for a lot of uh, animals and humans and all, and all this like. So um, we can see that in short term, it might affect them by washing, washing the habitats and all the farmlands out. And in long term, it might like lack of water supply. Right, and Dr. Kaplan. Yeah, I just wanted to, to to reinforce what Tom just said, and I think one of the major issues is that this is that well, two of the there are two major issues. One is the rate at which things are changing. Just going back to what you were mentioning before about in, um, plants and animals as well, as these glaciers melt and as we see climate change at higher elevations, what we will what will happen is that ecological zones will sort of move up the mountain. But if this happens really fast. Plants and animals simply just do not have time to adapt to this new environment, and they may as well go locally extinct. <clears throat> and many plants and animals, particularly in the Himalaya, are really evolved in isolation from one another in deep valleys, and that make, makes them endemic and adapted to very particular environments. So these, there is certainly a large risk of things like localized extinction with future climate change. Megafauna do not evolve quickly. I do remember that from my, my days as a biology student studying evolution <laughs> and animal behavior. And unfortunately, the, the invasive species that replace them are usually the uh, the less charismatic ones. I mean, you'll, you'll lose some really unique species and they get replaced by like rats all up and down the mountain, which is yeah, not what people yeah. want. Um, I've got an email here from Mike, and it, it kind of goes to capacity to deal with it, and I'll, I'll, I'll maybe add to it, but let's, let's get Mike's email in first. Mike says, Greta just deleted a message she tweeted five years ago that we only had five more years before the planet would be gone. Al Gore and his cabal said in 2000 that the polar caps would be gone by 2020. 
At some point, you should ask yourself how many times they are going to holler wolf before you get it. It's power for the elite, not saving the planet. So, I mean, Mike does raise a good point that if uh, the non-scientists, I mean, although Al Gore supposedly did invent the Internet. um, But, I mean, if if non-scientists are the one getting the headlines with these really over-the-top dire statements, you know, I know a lot of times, you know, scientists will hear things like that and then they'll say, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, but nobody wants to listen to them, uh, except for on Backchat, because we do get the best people. Um, <laughs> but, but, I mean, we, we have, you know, Mike, Mike makes a good point that we have politicians and, and activists that kind of make these really over-the-top claims, I, I guess because they think that's what they have to do to move the needle. But over time, they are going to lose credibility, and then that affects the ability to formulate and, and take action on real policy. Um, I mean, is that is that something that can, concerns you? I mean, I guess I'll go with you first, uh, Dr. Kaplan, and then and then we can ask Tom because you know from the yeah, scientist no, campaigner. Yeah, no, I agree completely, and you won't hear me making kind of um, spectacular doom and gloom statements like that. I actually believe that society as a whole has made incredible progress on dealing with mitigating, trying to avoid the worst of future climate change, and what we need to do is take a very positive view and say we're we're getting there, we're making progress. We just need to. We need to increase our efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, for example. These very sort of dramatic and doomsday statements, I I tend to agree with you, are not very helpful. On the other hand, we do have really tangible evidence, as was reported in in the ECMOD report that you mentioned at the beginning of the show, that people in say, mountain regions like the Himalaya are really starting to suffer the consequences of ongoing climate change in terms of damage to their physical infrastructure, to their farmlands and villages, and the disappearance of important plants and animals, and also just a changing landscape, which is affecting their sort of cultural heritage. And so... While we might not all be feeling every day the sort of doomsday consequences of climate change, there are definitely people in the world, particularly those people who are impoverished and living in remote mountain regions, who are suffering much more than maybe a lot of us realize. And so I do think that there's a certain amount of awareness that we should have and um, recognition or acceptance of responsibility for looking after not just ourselves, but people around the world living in different circumstances. Yep. Tom, Tom what's, your, what's your take on that? The, you know, where, where do you draw the line between sticking strictly to the science and you know, activists that kind of go make way over the top because they feel like they have to do that to, to get attention? Well, I have to say that, like most NGOs, including ourselves, we have to stick with science, like because science is the base of NGO. If we, if what we say is not uh, scientifically credible, then it will be just like nonsense, right? So, um, I would say that like people in charge, especially those like uh, people who are making policies, they know like whether the science is a thing. They know like uh, the science result or prediction of like climate change or the impact and the cost as well. Um, and NGOs like Rose, like us, or all other NGOs, we are trying to push uh, the policy makers to make sure they follow the scientists. Um, basically, for example, scientists in the United Nations been saying that they need more money to adjust climate, uh, to to fix climate climate justice, because like peoples in Nepal, they're not the one who create the most climate change, uh, most impact to the climate change, but they are suffering from 
uh, climate change and one of the most impact they are receiving. So um, NGO roles are using like scientists' word, but uh, to make sure the policymakers listen, to make sure the civil society um, push the governments or the policymakers around the globe to do more on climate change to fix the issue. Right, and and what about ordinary people in Hong Kong can do? And and also, you know, for for China, um, urbanization is still ongoing. Uh, people are moving uh, from you know, farmlands to um, the cities, and and I think they'll be they'll be having more greenhouse gas emissions. Um, what what could we do um, as ordinary people, Tom? Well, uh, there's a few things. Like I said at the beginning, at the very beginning, uh, climate change is a global issue that requires global solution. So it requires everyone effort to do something on it. Um, it. Of course, we can start from ourselves, but um, like all those things that everyone have heard that we can reduce our impact to the society. But at the same time, we can we have to push different government, like local from the uh, to or even higher level, like international wise. Anyway, um, we have to push all the policymakers around the globe to have like more energy transition to reduce the impact of climate change and also increase the adaptation of different cities and uh, living area from climate change as well. So it's both like we have to push policymakers to uh, reduce the impact of climate change and also increase the adaptation. Right. Dr. Kaplan, um, they all say that technology can also solve this problem. What, what's your view? <laughs> I think Technologies which are available now or in development are definitely one side of the of the efforts that we need to do to mitigate, so to avoid dangerous climate change in the future or climate change that's damaging to people, plants, and animals, and the earth system in general. But there's a lot of other things that we also need to do in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And I would just make a little plug for those listeners who are interested in this topic to look at the website of an NGO called Project Drawdown, which is a really good resource for understanding what we can do at level from individuals to global society in terms of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. And one, one thing that, just to follow up on what Tom said, you know, yes, there's, there are certain things like global or national policies that we can do, but there are other things that individuals can do, like think about avoiding food waste. Food waste is actually responsible for something like one-third of uh, global greenhouse gas emissions, something like that, in terms of both food waste at the farm all the way up to your table. And so increased awareness about things like avoided, avoiding food waste is something that could be, that's an in, that's a action that individuals could, um, could, could think about. And of course, then we also need to do things at lots of other levels. And to come back to your original question about technology, sure, there are technologies already available today, like wind and solar, which are rapidly replacing greenhouse gas emitting fuel, sources of energy. And so we are sort of headed in the right direction. But like I said earlier, we really need to redouble our efforts to try to deploy existing and new technologies and also help increase awareness and change our actions in ways that um, that will reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, I know one, one project in particular, China is moving, not heaven, but they are definitely moving earth to transport water from the southern the wet south of China to the expected to be drier 
north of China, and I wonder if they've got their eyes on the Himalaya and want to capture some of those floodwaters as they uh, undertake these massive projects to move water northwards. Um, I guess we'll have to keep an eye on that as well. We are going to continue with this topic after the news at the half hour, but for now I'm going to say thank you very much to Tom Ung, campaigner at Greenpeace, and Dr. Jed Kaplan, who's an associate professor in the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Hong Kong, who both brought a lot to the table. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to have two new guests on this topic, including uh, you know, Hong Kong public figure, Christine Lowe, who's now at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, as well as one of the research fellows from the institute that put out the study that sparked today's conversation in the first place, the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development. So we'll be happy to have both of them on. Uh, having a quick look at the weather, hot, appropriate for the topic, with sunny periods and a few showers, max temperature 32 degrees in the urban areas and a couple of degrees higher in the new territory. So hot, hot, hot out there. Uh, please watch yourselves and we are going to take that right through to the news with Andrew Work and Ada Wong on Backchat. The current temperature is 30 degrees Celsius and we're at 83% humidity at Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. And now the news with Barry O'Rourke. A former Cathay Pacific pilot says a miscommunication may have led to the emergency slides being deployed after Saturday's high-speed aborted takeoff of a CX flight. Peter Crow also told RTHK that using the emergency chutes was very dangerous and that he was surprised that only 11 people were injured. The building's department says there's no immediate structural danger after defective concrete work was discovered in a redevelopment project at the University of Hong Kong campus in Pok Fu Lam. HKU management confirmed the problems after photos of the defects were shared on social media. And Russia's President Vladimir Putin has held a meeting with his security officials as he tries to present an image of business as usual following a short-lived mutiny over the weekend staged by the Wagner mercenary group. The head of the group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, insisted he wasn't trying to topple the government in Moscow. We'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Doxing is a crime. If someone reposts a doxing message, that is also doxing. The Personal Data Privacy Ordinance has been amended. Reposting doxing messages without the consent of the people concerned is against the law. Offenders are liable to a maximum fine of $1 million and imprisonment for five years. Remember, be careful with reposting. Doxing is a criminal offense. The law also applies to the online world. Sometimes it isn't safe to go to the shoreline. Typhoons far from shore can cause swells, which will often cause huge waves when approaching the coast. The weather and the sea may look nice and calm, but your life may already be under threat. Stay tuned to the Hong Kong Observatory's forecast and warning messages on swells. Keep away from the shore and stop all water activities. You can also visit the observatory's website, hko.gov.hk, for more information. Back on Back Chat, I'm Andrew. We're here today with Ada Wong, and we are talking about a recent report from the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development that says that we are going to lose the glaciers of the Himalaya Kush, or most of them anyways, um, and a lot of water is going to be flowing to all the wrong places. Uh, we've got on the line with us now uh, Professor Christine Lowe, Chief Development Strategist at the Division of Environment and Sustainability at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Uh, many of you will also know her from the Undersecretary for Environment between 2012 and 2017, author and just all-around great Hong Kong public figure. Christine Lowe, great to have you on the show. 
Hi. Hey, thanks Thank for you. thanks for joining us. We also have uh, Jacob uh, or Jakob Steiner, research fellow from the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development, which is why we're having uh, their report with the prompted our topic today. He's an Asia high mountain expert, especially on risk, including avalanches, the cryosphere, and hydrology. Specializes on climate impacts on the Hindu Kush Himalayas and disasters, and also editor and chapter lead. So, uh, welcome to the show. Is it is it Jacob or Jakob? Good morning. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Well, it's uh, it's Jakob in, in German, my mother tongue, but uh, any of those is fine. Okay, Jakob, willkommen. And uh, so, so you're the reason we're talking about this today. Um, we've had some talk broadly about it, but where where do you see specific impacts in specific countries? Can you can you break it down for us for some of the biggest countries? Like what is going to happen in China specifically? What is going to happen in India? Pakistan is our top three, but perhaps others. Yeah, so uh, I mean, the, the the changes that we are seeing in the region is really affecting um, many of the countries that are um, that are linked to to the high mountains of Asia, right? And uh, uh, it, it it affects them definitely in in many different ways. Um, I think we'll 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 have to separate it um, into the regions that are very very close uh, to to mountains, right? So people that live very close to glaciers, to snows, um, to the high mountain water resources. Uh, there, in you know, in 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 close future, we are in in many cases even expecting that there will be more water available, right? So we have this this situation that in some cases we even have positive aspects. I mean, there may be more water available for agriculture, for example, in um, uh, in in areas adjacent to 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 glaciers. But a uh, few years down the line, even you know, um, towards mid-century. Uh, the water is going to decrease in, in rivers as the, the glaciers are going to recede so far and some uh, snowfields are not going to be around anymore in future. Um, that in future that, that there is not going to be um, enough water around anymore to, to, um, to supply local agriculture. So um, and we also expect a lot more extreme cases um, for these areas that, that are very um, close to these mountain areas. And that, that affects, uh, you know, Chinese, the Tibetan Plateau, for example, large regions um um and uh, where that 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 are exposed to these that, um these changes directly but that propagates down the large rivers um and eventually reaches also the the lower regions where the population densities are of course much much larger right so you do see that um the inhabitants um that uh, live close to the glaciers they will have to be displaced and moved to other parts of the country it's. Uh, I mean, we we do expect that there will definitely be more pressure um, on on um, on people in in mountainous areas um, to 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 make hard choices. Yes, definitely. It's 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 very hard to make projections to say you know exactly these mean many people will have to move because there's so many different push and pull factors going on when you talk about migration as well. Not all of them are also related to um, climate change, right? We also have socioeconomic changes that, that are happening in the region um, very, very rapidly, which makes it so much harder for us scientists to also project what actually is going to happen. And exactly for me as a scientist, the, the scary part is that so many things are happening at the same time and so many different disciplines need to work together to kind of project what is happening. Uh, which is, I think, the most important part of that report, right? We are not just looking at one aspect anymore of, for example, the water cycle. We are working across disciplines. Um, but we definitely do expect that there will be 
um, um, more likelihood for people to actually also um, probably have to make the choice to, to, to move somewhere else because of increasing hazards, for example, in the region or because of a lack of resources, yes. Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't happen all at once, does it? As we say in economics, everything happens at the margin. Uh, as it gets slightly worse, some people decide to leave. It gets worse, more people will decide to leave uh, and quite often not be able to come back. Um, Christine Lowe, I want to bring the conversation around because, I mean, you, you sit at the intersection of uh, scientific discovery and then policy. How how you know how do we take a report like this and change it into meaningful policy change? What is that? What is that process? Yeah, no, that's a very important question. And I thought just now Jakob gave a very good broad view of what science has told us. Now he also emphasized that if you're talking about specific communities, whether they're higher up, right, on the mountain, or they're lower down, uh, because the rivers. Uh, the glaciers flow into rivers and rivers eventually kind of uh, most of them roll out to the sea. So it's also going to affect many people further downstream. Now, so I, I, I think, first of all, uh, I think as, as far as policy is concerned, governments do need to work on uh, the details of their area with local and national scientists so that tracking could be done more specifically for their specific areas and regions. So that's number one. Uh, for example, in Hong Kong, we do have a community of climate scientists working together with Hong Kong Observatory, which is the uh, climate science authority in Hong Kong. And so this kind of pattern needs to take place actually all over the world. So that's number one. Now, number two is uh, obviously, relocation, whether you're high up on the mountain in small communities or further down in delta areas, this, as Jakob said, is a very big deal. Um, and because it's going to happen over time, it's really important at this stage that whilst a lot of attention is focusing on decarbonization, governments do need to focus on climate adaptation, which is what do you do in different places that face climate threats. So we already know about uh, um, strong winds, you know, rain and sea level rise and so on. But that's why you need governments in specific locations to look at the particular of what is happening in their areas. Yeah, I mean, if you're in a Nepalese village and you're worried about avalanche and things like that, you, you're not really going to be doing too much about global climate change, are you? You're going to be worried about making sure your house doesn't get swept down the mountain. Well, it may be that um, uh, if that's going to happen or it happened already, you know, governments would need to relocate the people. But if we again take Hong Kong, so I think Hong Kong people can have a clearer picture. In Hong Kong, for example, we are very hilly. We do have a lot of people and infrastructure and buildings um, built on slopes. So obviously, if you are a place like Hong Kong, the government has to spend time, and thank, thankfully our government has actually been working on landslide prevention uh, for, you know, several decades. So different communities where there are different geography and topography have to think about in their region what are the highest risks that they're going to face. Mm. And then they also need to look at what are the defensive mechanisms they need to plan and design for going forward. And of course, they also need to finance, you know, finance them. Mm. 
Jakob Steiner, is your organization providing that level of advice, or are you just saying, here's the deal with the glaciers, here are some of the impacts you can expect? Are you, do you also go to the next level of recommending policy? We definitely, so, so ECMOD is a, is a governmental organization, right? So the eight um, countries that, um, and that, that includes, uh, you know, China and India as well that are connected to uh, the Hindu Kush Himalaya, um, they, they, they sit on our board and, uh, and, and we are, uh, the reason that, that the organization exists is that, uh, that we are there for those, co- those governments to, to advise them. Now, that's not always only the, 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 the capitals, right? We also talk to, 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 to regional um, and, and very local um, uh, political actors. Um, but we definitely um, take those steps to, to then make recommendations. The very first step, I mean, I'm a scientist, right? For me, it's very important to, very, to, to, to first look at the facts and just put them out there. And I think the points that, uh, that Christine Lowe now made, these are, this is ex- absolutely correct. You know, first we need a kind of a catalog of issues to, to, to focus on and then know which ones matter at which location. And this is what we are providing in the first step, right? And we're doing this in a very transparent way, mm-hmm. which also helps us to create trust among politicians. But then we definitely go further and try to, to also discuss with them directly. Um, in one-to-one interactions of what that actually means for them and what would potentially be measures to work towards these adaptation processes, yes, because adaptation is really the word that we will be hearing a lot more in in, in future. Right. And um, is uh, communication enough between uh, the major stakeholders, for example, India, China, Nepal, etc.? Or, you know, would you like to see more coordination between the different concerned parties? I think, you know, I, I would definitely always like, like to see more coordination on what is going on already. Um, it, this is, it, there, there is already going on um, um, perhaps more than, than people may at times imagine and what it looks like in the news, right? So, so the governments do talk to each other. They do that not only by, um, you know, very obvious public channels, but uh, there are also the back channels that we have and we try to facilitate these exchanges. And you also have to imagine that sometimes it's a local government holder at the very border of some countries talking to their respective counterpart on the other side of the border, right? Because then, then also the, 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 the line of communication becomes a lot shorter rather than going through the respective uh, national governments. But you can also imagine that it, this is quite sensitive, talking about, you know, um, through these, these, these governmental structures in different countries. Um, it's, it's, so this is just to say I'm very hopeful um, that we are, you know, uh, that there is already some basis of communication going on. We can build on something, but it definitely, definitely has to improve. It has to increase in future because the changes are happening so fast that long deliberations over decades we really cannot afford anymore. Hmm. And is, it, is this your, I'm just curious, you're, you're, uh, the organization, you're with the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development. Is it just funded by the... Re, the, the nations in the region in the around the Himalaya Kush, or, or you, as, as the German government or somebody else, got a hand in supporting this organization? There, there is definitely there are core funds that are coming from uh, governments outside of the region, and uh, uh, and then there are also you know research grants like universities that are coming in to fund the work that we are doing, which I think in a way also makes sense because the issues that we are seeing in the HKH, right in the in the region here in the high mountains of Asia. They actually do not only propagate all the way down to, you know, Hong Kong or to, to downstream areas in India. 
they propagate you know all the way to 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 miami in the u.s they propagate to amsterdam and the netherlands because sea levels are rising because of changing um, um supplies from melting glaciers for example to sea levels um, because of people moving around because of uh, expected to move more around because of a changing climate poss- possibly um so it's an issue that that matters to you know anyone on the planet really and that's also i think globally we have to understand that that's that's uh, yeah you know climate change is a, is a global issue that we'll all have to tackle so it also makes perfectly sense that um, governments from other other countries that are outside of the region actually invent, invest in understanding this very very vast resource or um, uh, in, in in future and they are currently doing they are realizing it matters to them as well. Christine Lowe's uh, HKUST got a hand. I, I know you're doing work on the global situation. Do you also have a hand in what's happening in the Himalaya Kush? I, I think different things, right? So, for example, our climate scientists, they may be based in Hong Kong, but some of them actually specialize in certain types of uh, conditions. So, for example, we have scholars, an expert at HKUST that looks at kind of global rainfall and how climate change is actually changing that. So I, I, I think that our scientists are always very interested in the work that uh, uh, Jacob and his organization are doing. And the climate scientists here based in Hong Kong, and I think nationally in China and other places, would take this kind of research and try to understand it. Now, all I'm actually saying is there has to be discussion at the global level and at the local and regional level. Government needs to take that global picture, see how it might apply and impact them locally, because if you're going to deal with climate adaptation, what you're going to do in your local area, that has got to be designed and operated on a local basis. So, you know, climate science is a global issue, and I completely agree with Jakob, that when you're talking about government policy, there are government policy at the global level and then it has to be taken down to the national, regional, and local level for implementation. Mm. Well, whether it's uh, whether it's global, national, regional, or local, uh, Backchat is on it, and we're on it with the two of you today. So thank you very much to Professor Christine Lowe, Chief Development Strategist at the Division of Environment and Sustainability at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. And thank you to uh, Dr. Ya- Jakob Steiner, the Research Fellow at the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development, for joining us today on Backchat. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Happy 95th birthday, RTHK! Thank you for 95 years of public broadcasting service. Keep up the amazing work. I'm Janice Wailan. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. And we're back on Backchat with Andrew Work and Ada Wong. And we are being joined now by uh, a, a Backchat stalwart, a regular, a uh, star of the show uh, that comes on to join us to talk transportation. He is Alok James, CEO and Managing Director of Trans Consult and former Deputy Operations Director at Kowloon Motor Bus. Uh, welcome back, Alok. 
Thank you, Andrew. That was very flattering. <laughs> it's true. It's all true. You're one of our go-to guys on transportation. <laughs> but now we're talking transportation and law enforcement, which uh, you know makes it sound like we're, we're turning into a true crime podcast, but not yep. quite. Um, okay, so uh, you know we've discussed this before, but we can't assume everybody listening to the show knows what we're talking about. Um, first of all, maybe people have to know what the Hong Kong $2 fare subsidy is before we can talk about how it is being abused and what this new enforcement is. So just give us a quick 30-second hit on what is the $2 fare subsidy scheme. Well, basically, this $2 subsidy, $2 scheme for elderly was launched by railway companies back in 2000, early 2000s, you know, 2003, 2004. And that time it was launched as a weekend or holiday, public holiday scheme to encourage old people to come out and use the system. It was a pure marketing-driven, zero-subsidy scheme in those days. And then the scheme proved to be quite popular, and then government took it upon itself to make it a social scheme and make it an everyday scheme and started subsidizing the public transport operator by the fare differential. So the elderly pays $2, and whatever the differential fare is, that the government tops up as a subsidy to the public transport operator. And that scheme has been running since then, and it has proved to be extremely popular. Uh, you know, no surprises there. But it's not Every just on weekends anymore, popular. right? Sorry? But it's not just on weekends anymore. No, no. So it, it, it became a permanent everyday scheme for all elderly. It created some operational issues for the operators. But anyway, this has become reached a steady state. And then the previous administration, uh, they decided to lower the eligibility age from 65 to 60, which meant that it increased the pool of subsidy that was needed from the government substantially by over a billion dollars. And, and obviously now we are finding this to be uh, a little bit of a burden on our taxpayers' money, uh, it, you know, because the, this, this is, we have an aging population and the subsidy is ballooning. And there is a widespread suspicion of misuse. And, and I mean, I'm saying suspicion of misuse because, yes, there is a misuse, but I would say 99% are still uh, eligible people. Um, and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, it's, it's my guess, but uh, th that's the kind of number I, I would assume. Uh, having said that, government thinks that one of the ways to check this abuse is by improving the enforcement at the moment. And that's what is happening, and it's in the news at the moment. Now, I saw one wag uh, claim that there were three times as many senior citizen octopus cards in Hong Kong as there were senior citizens. Is that is that accurate? Well, there are. So Hong Kong has 7 million population, and we have 39 million cards in circulation. This is total. So it, even for adults, you can imagine that the number of cards that are in circulation is way beyond what the number of people are. I mean, I personally have probably 15 cards in my home. So <laughs> that, that, I don't think that is a metric that I would really uh, use that much. And old people, I think, tend to lose their cards more than um, you know, adults. They, they probably you know, leave it behind here and there. And they use multiple cards. I don't. I'm not surprised by that number, actually. Right. So, Alok, as far as I understand, you know, for the senior cards, you have to apply for a card. You have to put your photo on the card. Um, Only if you are doing a joy card, which is 60, age 60. Okay. So, above 65, you don't have to anymore, right? Correct. Hmm. And and uh, so above 65, it's uh, they can apply uh, for as many cards as they wish. Yes. And and the suspected abuse uh, would be to distribute those extra cards to other people. Yes. Is that is that correct? So that's as, correct. And, yeah. and there had been some checking. So all public transport operators are required to check uh, any abuse. 
Only thing was that for trains, they could be fined. For MTR, they could be fined. Whereas for buses, there is no ordinance mechanism to fine the passengers. So the, all they could do, the bus companies, was to request the passengers to pay the differential or pay the full fare, basically. Right. So, that's so, the, so, so my question no is that, yeah, law enforcement is, is all well. Uh, it was reported uh, this morning's uh, newspapers that, um, uh, you know, there are law enforcers in the MTR and, um, you know, at bus stations. But this cannot go on for a very long time. And Precisely. I think this is a, when you see a nail, you hit it. I mean, that's the approach we are taking. So if, if we go to the source of this problem, this, the, the pain point that we're having now uh, is the issue of too many cards. Uh, if we limit, um, if we use ID card, you know, one elderly per card, um, w- w- would that work? Well, that still would not stop elderly to pass it around. It will just increase the premium of passing it around. That's all, I, I believe. I mean, this is what is happening when you start controlling the licenses or controlling the numbers. It's just that value of the card goes up. That's all. I mean, I mean, there's there's an interesting point there because somehow they manage not to lose their Hong Kong ID cards all the time, but yet the yeah. octopus cards mysteriously disappear, and, <laughs> and so there's well, there's piles of them in circulation. Because they take it out quite often, they hang it around their neck when they are traveling. You know, there are a number of uh, reasons for that. I, I won't really go down that path that they all the elderly are abusing uh, the card. Um, Say, yeah. mm, but I mean, so uh, let's let's go to the other side of it. The transport operators, um, they haven't really had a strong incentive to clamp down on this, have they? Like they, they kind of win as well, don't they? No, no, there, there is no incentive because first, as I said, bus companies do not have any authority. They don't have any enforcement powers to clamp down on somebody who is abusing the cart. Right. So, so even when I was running the buses, even when we caught people who were abusing the card, there is nothing that we can do. There is no uh, bylaws that are, that exist in Hong Kong. All you can do is just ask them to pay. All you can do is just ask. So we just need manner. a legislative amendment, and that can be done, I Correct. guess. That's yes. So MTRC can fine, but bus companies cannot fine anything, anyone. Oh, so the MTR can fine, but the bus companies can't. Why is that? That's right. The, uh, don't ask me why, but this is the this is true. This is how it is at the moment. MTRC has a series of bylaws as a part of MTR ordinance, whereas the public bus service ordinance, PBSO, that does not have any mechanism of imposing fine on passengers. Is, is that so because... What, 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 what is the authority doing these days, you know, with the law enforcement? Oh, the transport department can fine because this is, they consider ah, right. that as a fraud, and then they would approach it, and that's why they're talking about even arresting people, because they will arrest people on the pretext of fraud rather than fair evasion. Mm. Is the, differential, is, is the difference between the MTR and the buses because on a bus, somebody is looking at you when you get on the bus and can call you out. But on the MTR, you're going through turnstiles, most of which are unmanned. There's nobody there. I mean, is that, well, is that why are, they have the... There are manning in the sense that if you, every time you use an elderly card on an MTR turnstile, there is a light that comes on, which the, any operator at the station or the ticket office can see that this card is a discount card or an elderly card which is being used at the moment. Yeah, yeah but I mean, most of those turns, like if you wanted to evade it, it's pretty easy to go through a turnstile where there's none of the staff anywhere near it. I mean, you just, just avoid the ones that are right beside the little booths, right? Yes and no, because there are a lot of plain cloth staff as well in MPI. Uh, having said that, the cost of eva- stopping the evasion is quite high, and most of the operators then, then turn a blind eye because... Uh, it's just they don't have the manpower to to put there to to stop people. Yeah. So I mean, I guess the, the ultimate question is: is is this going to be effective, or is the only thing the government can do is maybe pare back this 
subsidy or, you know, say that you can't use it during rush hour. I mean, I mean, but that would defeat the purpose of having elderly people in the workforce. I mean, yeah. is there any effective solution? I mean, one of, the, of course, one solution is to empower the transport operator and incentivize them to impose the penalties. If they think that they have a skin in the game, uh, like they collect the fares, like they're very overzealously collect the fare, they would also collect this fare. And they would make sure that there is no, um, you know, no evasion of fare. So obviously, that empowerment at the moment doesn't exist. For whatever reason, government is very, um, I would say, very conservative in that approach to allow bus companies to impose fines on evaders, fair evaders. How about this? I go through with the regular card now. I pay the regular price. I go through with the senior citizen's card. I pay $2. The government pays the rest. Either way, the transport company gets the same. What if the transport companies no, got a bonus no, 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 from no, the government for everybody that caught? Uh, let me correct it. So elderly people get a half fare. Mm -hmm. And transport company gets the difference between $2 and the half fare, not the full fare. Ah, the half fare. Okay, so they would still rather people were paying full yeah. fare. So if there is an incentive for transport companies to impose it, because then they collect the adult fare. Mm. But like you said, the, co the cost of having somebody working there versus them maybe catching one yeah. person an hour. Yeah. So, so what, what can be a long-term solution to this? Uh, people have been throwing ideas around, for example, increase the $2 to $5 or even more, uh, but that doesn't work. And that, uh, what, what are your views? To me, as I said, you make the incentivize the operator to impose the evasion. I mean, today they enforce the fair payment, uh, very simple, because that goes into their pocket. And anybody who doesn't pay the fare uh, is a hit on public transport operators' revenue. Very simple. And that's why they, the, the driver would make sure you tap your card. Similarly, for this $2 fare, I think if there is an incentive for the operator to impose this um, condition on people, they will, drivers will check. They will figure out internal mechanisms to, for drivers to check if somebody is using a discount card. And it takes a minute for driver to just verify. Hmm. Okay, but what happens if uh, if they catch somebody and this is a big bus and uh, with lots of people and you know one yeah. person is uh, delaying the whole bus? Uh, what what should they do? What should no, the no, driver you won't do? delay because the the person is already in the confined environment. Then the driver will just report that there is a violator on on board the bus, and at the next stop or or somewhere down the line, um, there will be enforcement staff who will just take the passenger out and find the passenger, which is exactly how MTRC does at the moment when you take a first class. And if you don't have a first class validation, then the, they will just ask you to step out of the, on the platform and then they will find you. That's it. I think we need an Alok Jane Robocop <laughs> on the buses and trains, <laughs> hundreds, thousands of them. Alok Jane no, is... No, not quite. You, know, <laughs> you need to, you know, this is like fishing. You catch the fish. So yeah. you, you don't um, you, you catch enough sample and the numbers go down. Hong Kong uh, fare evasion rate generally is an extremely low number. It's in tens of decimals of places, you know, 0.02%, something like that. Got it. Lowest in the world. Alec Jane, we got to be 20%. We got we to gotta cut you loose, Alec Jane, but thank you very much for your insights. As always, thank you very much uh, for all our guests today. Thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you very much, Ada, for joining me. Thanks to our producer, Raphael Blatt, and our sound engineer, James Lung. Come back for Back Chat, where I will be joined by Philip Wong. <laughs>